this is an important question. Where are we headed? Where are we going? What is everything all, what is everything all leading up to? It's, it's a, it is a big question for us uh, and one that the Bible does address. Like everything else in the whole storyline of Scripture, the ultimate destiny, so our, our future, the culmination of all things, the hinge point of that is really the cross of Christ. That the cross not only changes who we are, and it not only changes where we're going, the cross of Jesus actually changes everything about the cosmos. It changes everything about the universe. And what we're going to see today, hopefully, are just a few truths about what that time is going to be like, and then also just a couple of very practical ways that we respond now in light of what will be, okay? So by way of introduction, uh, a, a little more about my uh, family. Um, earlier, uh, about a year, I guess it was about a year ago, my wife and I read this book, and the book is called Grit. It's written by uh, a psychologist, sociologist named Angela Duckworth. So the premise of the book is that she was asked to do a research project uh, about West Point Military Academy. So she went and she started researching cadets that came into West Point Military Academy and noticed that there were some distinctions between people who made it all the way through West Point and those who flushed out within the first couple of months, that they didn't even make it through just sort of the basic entrance into West Point. They eventually left. So she set her mind to try and discover what the distinctions were. Could you isolate down to a few characteristics that were apparent or visible uh, or available in the people that made it all the way through and those that washed out of the program? The results of that study led to this book called Grit. Fascinatingly, here is the primary point of emphasis that, that she learned, okay? So, bear in mind that to, to even be considered in the study, you have to have entered into West Point, which means you're obviously at the top of your class academically. It means you're obviously at the top of your class physically. It means that you've even had, you know, a, a, a recommendation letter written by senators and members of the House of Representatives. So, clearly, you're already the cream of the... You're already the cream of the crop. Her research determined that the dividing point between people who made it all the way through the program and the ones that didn't, the ones who stayed true and the ones that quit eventually, the dividing point was your ability to uh, have a sustained participation in a single activity over the course of multiple years. So let me flesh that out. If you in high school participated in an extracurricular activity, does not matter what it is. Could have been the math club, could have been the AV club, could have been the football team, could have been the band. It doesn't matter. If you participated actively in that activity for two consecutive years or longer, then you were twice as likely to make it through West Point as you were not to. In other words, it's all about perseverance. It's about whether you can stay true to something 
for a sustained period of time, even when it's difficult. And that's the subject of the book, Grit. So my wife and I read the book. And one of the ideas that she puts out in the book is that in her family, they have a hard things policy. So every member of their family at a given time has to be doing one hard thing. At the time when she wrote the book, her hard thing was training for the um, Boston Marathon. That's what she wanted to do. Her husband's hard thing was learning how to play a musical instrument. That's what he was doing. And the kids were all doing hard things. So we read this book, and, and it was really unfortunate for our children that we read the book. <laughs> Because immediately, man, we read it and we started implementing the hard things policy in our, in our house. So we went to our kids before the summer and we said, guys, you're not going to waste the summer. We want you to have summer goals. So before the summer starts, we need you to articulate for us an educational goal, a physical goal, and just a personal goal. You choose whatever that one is. And so, the, you know, Christian, my eight-year-old, his, his, uh, his physical goal was... Um, he wanted to be able to throw and catch the baseball, which is what we've been working on. He wanted to be able to do that 40 times without dropping it. So we worked all summer long, 40 times, throw and catch the baseball. Uh, my daughter, uh, she is learning how to play volleyball. So she wanted to be able to do like 30, 40, I can't remember the exact number, consecutive sets against the, the wall, setting the volleyball up against the wall. And then it came time for the, for the 13-year-old, then 12-year-old, Joshua. And he, he shocked us all. So the 12-year-old said, I'm gonna, I want to train for and run a half marathon. And I was so proud. Oh, I was so proud. This is a really hard thing for a kid who's never run more than, you know, two and a half miles at a time. How awesome. I was so proud until I realized I'm going to be training for and then running a half marathon because we're not going to stick a 12-year-old out and have him run 10 miles down the street. <laughs> so this is what we did together, the hard thing. We truly did. In the heat of Nashville all summer long, we trained. We, we did run the half marathon. We ran it in, in the fall. He beat me. Um, not because I let him beat me, but because he genuinely beat me. I was trying to win, and he, and he still beat me. Um, there was one particular Saturday, because on the, on the trading uh, uh, method that we had, Saturday was when you did your really long runs, you know, so you'd do seven, eight, ten miles on a Saturday morning. There was one Saturday that it was just, it was terrible outside. It was raining, thunderstorm, and so we had to go to the, we had to go do this in the gym. So we spent eight miles on treadmills. Exactly. I'm not sure who made that, but that is the right sound. You are just spinning your wheels, running, 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 and not going anywhere. You're, you're, just, you're there. So the treadmill is in some ways an exercise of futility. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, it feels like you're on a treadmill. Solomon, or, or some people don't think that the author is Solomon, and would just call him Koheleth, the teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, the, the wise man, uses the word futility in Ecclesiastes more than 25 times. Futility, futility, futility. In other translations, you might find it meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. That is the constant refrain. 
So the person who wrote Ecclesiastes, the wisest man in the world, had the kind of resources where he could look at every pursuit under the sun. So he could educate himself to the maximum amount possible. He could chase every sensual pleasure to the nth degree. He could study all kinds of things from botany to zoology to languages. And still, at the end of all of those pursuits, his constant refrain was, meaningless. It's all meaningless. There's nothing new under the sun. Futility, futility, futility. So if you read all the chapters of Ecclesiastes, you get that sense that you're on the treadmill of life. It doesn't matter what you put your mind to, what you put your effort to, what you put your resources to. It doesn't matter how strong you get or how fast you get or how smart you get or how wealthy you get or how much pleasure you pursue. You're on this constant treadmill where you never really get anywhere. It's all futile. Over 25 times, the teacher uses that word. You only find it once used in the New Testament. And it comes from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul, beginning in verse 18, says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Futility, Paul writes in the New Testament. And it's kind of the same sentiment in the New Testament that you find in the book of Ecclesiastes. That Solomon or the teacher would look at everything under the sun and say everything is futile, meaningless. All of these pursuits absolutely are. And Paul would look at creation and say, yeah, that's true. And it has been subjected to futility. This starts to get at a condition that the world is in. And in order for us to understand where we're going, where we're going to eventually end up, we have to begin with where we are now and why we're here. So according to Paul, all of creation, everything, everything that we see has been subjected to futility. The image of the treadmill holds true that everything that we can look out in the world is spinning its wheels, not going anywhere, not accomplishing what it desires in a constant state of frustration and, to go even further, in a state of decay. 
Why is that? Why is futility the operating basic system of all of creation? Why is that? Well, the answer is because of sin. That's why. In order to understand this, we have to understand that typically we have a problem defining sin. That usually we think of sin as a particular act that we commit. And while that may be true in a sense, it's not a broad enough definition for us to really understand the depth and the gravity of our true problem. Because sin is not necessarily the acts that you perform. Sin is a condition in which we find ourselves. And not only us, but the entire world. So if you scroll all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and the Lord created everything that we see. Everything that we see, the Lord created. And even things that we don't see, God created. And I'm not just talking about microscopic kind of things like atoms and electrons and, and all of those kinds of things, but concepts. The Lord created these too. The Lord created things like time. There was no time, and then there was time. The Lord created all of these things. And after he created all of these things, he stepped back and made the pronouncement, this is good. It's good. It's beautifully simple in the way that he makes the pronouncement. He says, this is good. And then he makes human beings, and he doesn't say this is good. He says, this is very good. And at the end of all that, at the end of time, when, when God gets done creating in six days, on the seventh day, the Bible tells us that on the seventh day, God rested. Now, why did God rest on the seventh day? Uh, was it because he, he was tired? He'd done all that creating, after all. So he needed to take a break, kick back, spend some time on the cosmic recliner. Did the Lord need to take a nap? No, of course not. It wasn't because he was tired. The Lord rested because he was finished. There was nothing else left to do. And why was there nothing else left to do? Because it was good. Jared mentioned um, a couple of hours ago when he introduced me that I've written a couple of books and I've got another book coming out and um, the book that's, that's coming out, um, I just got the first copy of the book that's coming out, which is a cool thing as an author. You get it, and it's cool as long as you're looking at it, but then as soon as you open it up, it's not cool anymore because as soon as you open up, on the very first page, you start thinking, ah, I should have said it like this, or I forgot to put this in there, and you start picking apart your own work. Why? Because it's not truly finished. Because you're growing, you're learning, you're changing, you're saying things now in a different way that you didn't say them before. The point is that when the Lord did his creative work, it wasn't like that. It wasn't that on the seventh day the Lord started walking around and said, you know what, I probably could have done a little bit more work on that ostrich. Or, man, I just I took a, I took a, a, a shortcut over here on the Appalachian Mountains. No. It was good. Nothing else left to do. Everything existed in the perfect state that the Lord wanted it to be in. And everything worked in harmony with each other. Everything was good. And then everything wasn't. 
A couple of chapters later, Genesis chapter 3, you'll know this story as well. The snake comes into the garden, the serpent, and the great temptation comes to human beings. And we, I say we because they as our representatives, we failed to believe in the goodness of God. And we chose to sin. Now when we sinned, we sometimes think about that as severing the relationship between man and God. It did that. Sin put a wall in between us and God. Certainly. But that's not all that sin did. Sin also turned what was good upside down. Sin changed everything, and it caused everything that existed in cosmic harmony to become cosmically upheaved. Up is down, right is left, down is up. Our value systems are corrupted. We love what we shouldn't love at all. Everything is different. Everything is changed. Violence replaces peace. And there's futility because nothing really does exactly what it's supposed to do anymore. Treadmill, treadmill, treadmill over and over again everywhere you look. So friends, if you look out in the world today, the answer, as Jared told us this morning, the answer ultimately to what is wrong with the world is that sin is wrong with the world. That's the answer. Why is there a school shooting in Parkland, Florida? Sin. Why is there homelessness? Sin. Why are there tornadoes that rip apart communities? Sin. Now, to make sure we're saying this exactly right and not miscommunicating what we mean, it doesn't mean that someone in that community or in that school sinned, therefore the tornado or the shooter or whoever came. It's not what it means. It means that we exist and the world exists in a state of sin. And that's why all of those things happen. So we sin because we are sinners. It's our nature to do so. That's, that's what we are apart from Christ. Creation is in a state of futility because creation is in a state of sin. The answer behind everything that is ultimately wrong and bad is sin. So here's the thing about the cross. Does the cross take care of our sin problem? Yes, it does. The cross takes care of our sin problem in that we are reconciled to God because of the cross. But the cross does more than that. It not only takes care of our sin problem, the cross takes care of the sin problem. Not just for us, but for all of creation. Paul points at this in Romans chapter 8, saying that creation is waiting with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Because right now, the creation was subjected to futility in the hope that itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Now, the Bible 
gives you some hints about the cosmic nature of what happens in the, in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Some of the most vivid things that you find are what happened when Jesus was actually crucified. You find things happening on the crucifixion that are, are I mean, they're crazy. They're mind-boggling. Things that relate to us, but also things that relate to creation in general that give us an idea that something going on here is bigger than just a person's individual relationship with God. That there's something of a cosmic nature happening here when Jesus is being crucified. In the the, uh, account in Matthew of the crucifixion, there's a detail in there that is beautiful. That when Jesus dies on the cross... Matthew records all kinds of things happening. One of the things that he says is that the veil in the temple was torn. There was a a veil in the the temple where the Jewish people and the God-fearing Gentiles would go to worship, although the Gentiles could only go into the outer area. And the veil was what separated the worshipers from God. Behind the veil was where... They believed the presence of God would dwell in his fullness, the holy of holies. And there was a veil there that nobody went through except one person. And that person would only go through once a year. Folklore tells us, in fact, that that place behind that veil was so holy that when the high priest went in once a year, they used to tie a rope to his leg in case he was struck dead while he was in the presence of God so they could haul him out. The Bible tells us when Jesus dies on the cross that that veil that separated the holy from the unholy, the righteous from the unrighteous, was torn. But the the most beautiful part to me about the detail in Matthew is that Matthew goes so far as to say the veil was torn from top to bottom. Now, isn't it wonderful that he told us that? It's in there. Go back and read it. It's not torn from bottom to top. It's torn from top to bottom. Like the hands of God reached down and tore it. Because it can't be torn from the bottom to top. We try all kinds of things in our flesh to tear that veil from the bottom to the top. We try and behave our way through that veil. We try and and give our way through that veil. We try and citizenship our way through that veil. But you can't tear that veil from bottom to top. It can only be torn from top to bottom. That's what the Lord did. He tore the veil from top to bottom. So there is reconciliation between us and God because the veil, symbolic of the sin that keeps us from God, was torn by God through the death of his son from top to bottom. But that's not the only thing that happened in the book of Matthew's account. And even when you read the other ones, you find that not only was the temple veil torn, but you find the sky growing dark. That there's an earthquake. The earth starts shaking. And then you find that the graves of dead people are opened up. And there are these dead people that are walking around on the day that Jesus is crucified. All of those things point to the fact that it's not only something that happens between us and God in terms of reconciling our relationship, but something bigger than us, something that the sun is involved in, something that the earth is involved in, something that resurrects people and changes the very fabric of reality. This is what's going on here. It is a cosmic kind of event when the Son of God 
was crucified and then resurrected. It's bigger than us. And if we look back at Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that just like creation exists in a state of sin, so do we. And just like at some point the children of God are going to be revealed that creation will eventually experience the same freedom. So let me make three observations for you and then follow that with two practical action points. Three observations concerning the full redemption that Christ is bringing and is going to bring. Okay? Here's observation number one. That we and creation are in a state of already, but not yet. We in crea- and, and creation are in a state of already, but not yet. Um, let me try to illustrate this using a, a historical example from World War II. So, um, the end of World War II, there is a... Uh, uh, a meeting that happens when the armistice is declared for World War II. The war is over. It's done. We remember this as VE Day, right? Happened, this is when victory is declared. But historians look back on World War II and say, well, that may have been the day when victory is declared, but that's not actually the day that victory was won. They would look Uh, months and months and months and months before VE Day to another day that we remember as D-Day. So D-Day, you probably remember from history class, this is the storming of the beach in Normandy, France. It's a tremendous operation by the Allied powers. Coming together, heavily invested in, I mean, it's kind of a make-or-break point for the Allied powers, but they know that if they can take this beach, if they can take Normandy, essentially it's going to break the back of the Axis powers in Europe and secure victory if we can just take the beach. So they invest in taking the beach. They invest lives in taking the beach. They invest military hardware in taking the beach, resources, all kinds of things. And at great cost, they end up taking the beach. And now here, decades later, historians would look back and say, the leaders at that time were right. The day that the victory was won was D-Day. The day that victory was ultimately declared was V-E Day. And there's this period of time in between when victory was won and victory was declared. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. That section of time in between D-Day and V-E Day statistically is actually the most violent period of the war. Even though victory had already been declared, it just hasn't been won yet. So if you think about that in terms of the victory itself for the allied powers, that period of time was between already but not yet. This is where we find ourselves in the period between already and not yet. Already the moment when the victory was absolutely secured, when the battle, the war was won, when we are absolutely certain the enemy's back has been broken. Well, that is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
There is no doubt about the nature or the fate of, of victory. Victory was won then, and yet victory has not been fully declared. That's when Jesus is going to come back. That's when victory is declared. And we live in the meantime. And just like the historical example of World War II, the meantime, well, that's a bloody time to live. It's a literally bloody time to live. Would you look at the number of people who have been martyred for the cause of Christ in between? I mean, it's a bloody time to live. But it's also a bloody time to live for nature, for all creation. Because in between, you find creation, in Paul's words from Romans 8, we find creation groaning for the day when the already becomes the not yet. When the declared victory becomes the consummated victory. We're living in the meantime. We see what's happening with creation in ourselves also. So if you're a you're a Christian here today, in your heart, you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. You are a blood-bought child of God. Every blessing in the heavens has already been given to you in Christ. That is a reality. And you know what else? You might get cancer. And you're certainly going to get older. Your hair is going to gray. And it might fall out. The laws of thermodynamics still apply to you. You are in a deteriorating state. We all are. We are literally one moment closer to death now than we were two minutes ago, right? We are in that state of decay. So you find that dichotomy happening, that on the inside, we are the children of God, and it's as real as anything else is real. And yet on the outside, we're the same old people as everybody else. But there will come a day, there will come a day, when there will be no mistake about who the children of God are. That's because what's on the outside will finally match what's on the inside. That when the Lord comes back, he's going to call us to step up and the children of God will be revealed and everybody will know that these are the children of God. And that same thing is going to happen with creation. That when the already becomes the not yet, what is invisible is going to come visible and what is now currently groanings will become like the joy of childbirth. That's what Paul says. Creation finds itself and we find ourselves in the meantime, in between the already and the not yet. Here's point number two, second observation about the full redemption that Christ brings. Observation number two is that our hope is not isolated to ourselves. Our hope is not isolated to ourselves. Let me take you to the very end of the story here, to Revelation chapter 21. It's a beautiful passage, and just read some of these verses over you. Listen to this. Just listen. You don't even have to turn there. Just listen and take it in. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne 
look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then listen to this. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, behold, take notice, sit up, get this in your mind. I am making all things new. And then he also said, write this down. Because these words are faithful and true. Jesus sitting on the throne says, I am making all things new. The word new there is the Greek word kainos. It's not the Greek word neos. You can translate it both as new. Neos means new in time or in origin. So Jesus is not saying, hey, I've got this new world that I've put in another dimension over here just been waiting for the right time when I'm going to like tesser it over. That's from a wrinkle in time. I'm going to tesser it over into this dimension and now you can live in this brand new unspoiled world. That's not what he's saying. That's neos. Kainos means new in nature or in quality. So what Jesus is saying is, no, you got the earth and the cosmos. I'm only making one. But this one going to be made new. It's going to be redeemed just like the children of God are going to be redeemed. And just like the children of God are going to be revealed in their glorious form, so also creation will be revealed in its glorious form. Just like right now you are groaning inwardly because you exist in a state of sin, so also creation is groaning because it exists in a state of sin. And just like one day you're going to be redeemed in a position where for all eternity everything that you do will be geared around the worship and the praise of the Son of God, so also will creation eventually cry out the name of Jesus. That's what he's saying. So when we think about our hope for the future, man, it's not just about me. Is it about me? Yes, it's about me. And it's about you. I mean, for crying out loud, it's beautiful. The passage here. He's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief will be no more. Crying will be no more. Pain will be no more. Why? Because that's old stuff. That's from the age of the already but not yet. And there's no place for it here. Why? Because this is new. This is brand new. That's why all that stuff is going away. It's because there's no place for it here, not in the new that's coming. So is it about you? Yes, it's about you. It's absolutely about you, but not only you. It's about everything, everything being made new. Here's observation number three. That in this new heaven and in this new earth that Jesus is making new, that Jesus is at the center of it all. If you go back to Revelation chapter 21, some amazing things talking about what will be the new creation, the redeemed creation, the kainos creation that the Lord is, is making. This is the one that sticks out. For us in verse 3 that there's this loud voice from the throne making this declaration look 
the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with him. This is the long-held desire in the heart of God. Back in the garden, that Adam and Eve, before they sinned, walked and talked with God in the cool of the day. They fellowshiped with him. We have been on a pathway back to that ever since. Paul, in the book of Corinthians, tells us that that's the road that we're on. Right now, he acknowledges, because we're in this state of futility and sin, because we're in this, like, looking at God through a mirror that's kind of tinted and shadowy, and we can kind of see what's on the other side, but someday we're going to know, even as we are known, with absolute and complete clarity. That's the day when the dwelling of God will be with men. When we walk and talk with the Lord again, that there is no hindrance between us, that we live in a state of absolute intimacy. And ultimately, that's why heaven is heaven. I mean, regardless of what the Hallmark movies or the Hallmark cards would say, the reason why heaven and heaven is not because there's golden streets and not because you don't need any tissues or allergy medication and not because there's any hearses or graveyards. The reason why heaven and heaven ultimately is because that's where Jesus is, at the center of it all. All those other things are a byproduct of that fact. But the center of everything is Jesus, that the dwelling of God is with men. This is indeed his name, Emmanuel, God with us. It is a reality and it is a prayer for the future. Even at the center, God will dwell with us. And that's the fulfillment of everything being right. When everything is currently wrong. then let me give you just a couple of observations here. So those are three observations, uh, three observations concerning the full redemption that Christ brings. Now let me give you two action points about what happens now. That's future. It is coming, surely, certainly. This is what we're all headed towards. Here's how that, I think, changes our lives now. There are a lot of ways, but let me give you, let me give you two. First one is this. What God is doing, we should be pursuing. What God is doing, we should be pursuing. So we get a picture of what God is doing. He's bringing us to this full redemption. And that picture ought to drive the way that we set our priorities, that we spend our money, that we spend our time, what we love, what we commit ourselves to. It really ought to drive us in the present. What God is doing, we ought to be pursuing. That means we ought to be pursuing things like justice. It means we ought to be pursuing things like caring for the poor, compassion, and evangelism. Because this is the pathway that the Lord has put us on. This right here. The redemption of all things. So we ought to be spending our time and energy trying to bring forth what God is also bringing forth. Now, of course, we do that knowing that ultimately all those things are sort of on the treadmill too. But they're the right treadmill for us to be on. What God is doing, we also ought to be pursuing. And then here's the second action point. If this is true, if this is true, then it means that you as a Christian 
can grieve like no one else. So the first action point is about putting yourself to the right purpose, to the right cause, investing yourself in the right way. The second action point is about recognizing that if we're in this period between the already and the not yet, then there will be plenty of opportunity for us to grieve. But because we know about the cosmic implications of the cross and the resurrection, then the way that we grieve is changed dramatically. Paul knew this. He wrote to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He said, I do not want you to be uninformed so that you don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. Now, it's important to notice here. Paul didn't say, I don't want you to be uninformed so that you do not grieve. That is not what he said. He said, you should grieve. But the manner of your grief ought to be profoundly different than the grief of the rest of the world. What does that mean? What does that different kind of grief look like? Well, it means you grieve with hope, for one thing. It means that you grieve and you recognize that grief is a, a temporary sort of thing. That you're sad, but when someone is in Christ, you know that the person is away from the body but is with the Lord. That's a very different way to grieve. But can I encourage you that there may be another way that you grieve differently that you, you perhaps have not thought of? That as a Christian, you should actually grieve more deeply than the person who doesn't know Christ rather than less deeply. The reason that you grieve more deeply as a Christian is because you understand the cosmic nature of what we're talking about. So when someone close to you goes and is with the Lord, you're not only grieving the personal loss of that person, you are grieving the state of creation. I'm not just grieving that my father has died. I'm grieving that there is death. I'm not just grieving the sickness that is at play. I'm grieving that there's sickness at all. You feel it as a Christian. You grieve more, more deeply than people that are outside the faith. Because you're not just grieving for you. You're grieving for everything, everything. My, both of my parents-in-law, my wife Jana's parents, they've both gone and, and are with the Lord. My father-in-law, when I first met my father-in-law, I was a, a freshman in college, and my wife took me home for Thanksgiving, and I remember walking up the front walk, and it was literally the biggest man I'd ever seen. Uh, he was huge. He wasn't actually that big, but in my eyes at that point, he was really, really big. Um, he, he, he was a big man. I mean, he was 6'4". Uh, it's about 275, big, burly, in shape, uh, loved to ride his bicycle. When, when, when my wife and I got married, you know, he would do 90, 100-mile bike rides on the, the weekend. He owned a law firm uh, after he was a uh, high school basketball coach. When my wife was a, a, a little girl, she remembers that he would 
coach basketball, and then after he got done coaching basketball, he would go work nights at the local uh, convenience store to earn extra money because he had three daughters. And then he decided this was not a way to live, so he packed up his family and moved to Topeka, Kansas, so that he could go to law school. And he did. Went to law school, came back to New Mexico, where she's from, and practiced law for a number of years. Continued to practice law until he owned his own law firm, did that for a while. After he owned his own law firm, he was appointed by the governor of New Mexico to be a district judge. So, hard work, athletic, loved the Lord. Taught a Sunday school class for decades. Faithful, loved the church. He got Parkinson's disease when uh, Jana and I were 25 years old. So that would have made him about 50. Um, it was uh, the kind of Parkinson's disease that had a, uh, a, a particular uh, syndrome that went along with it called Lewy Bodies Syndrome. So the Parkinson's disease not only did it have the physical effects, but it had a great mental effect too. So he fell into dementia really, really quickly. So by the time he was 55 years old, he was living in a full-time assisted living home, a nursing, a nursing home, just a shell of who he once was. And couldn't remember much about anything uh, that, that was happening. He could sometimes remember his daughters. He never remembered me. And, and he died before he was 60 years old. So I remember one of the last times that we went uh, back and, and saw him and he was just been ravaged by this disease it was, it was terrible so we you know we took our kids and you, you sat with him and you just kind of sat there I'm sure you've been in a similar situation with someone like that too and we were getting ready to leave and the only thing that I could think to say to Joe the only thing that I could it's the only thing that I could think to say. I don't know if he understood what I said. The only thing I could think to say to him was, Jesus, Jesus is going to fix this. And he is. He's going to fix it for individuals. But he's also going to fix it for the cosmos. Everything that's wrong is going to be righted. Everything that's false is going to be made true. Everything that's hidden is going to be exposed. Everything that's unjust is going to be accounted for. Jesus is going to fix this. And you can replace this with anything that you want. He's going to fix this. That's the trajectory of where we're headed. Not just for our sake, but for the sake of the entire creation. And so I wonder if I could, in closing here, I would just love as a, a prayer to end this, if I could just read, I'm going to read these verses in Revelation chapter 21 again. And uh, that's how we're going to close this and thinking about what will be. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, God's dwelling is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. And so we say today, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. response let us sing to the one to Jesus Christ whose death brings about the restoration of all things He stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned, and bowing to the Father's will, He took a crown of thorns. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, salvation where your 
Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful I am bound, I am bound, 
Clean. I come to the conclusion we're all clueless here The more I try